With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The more you improvise, the more special the audience feels. And people really respond to that, you know. But yeah, it is an experience. And it's also just like so much more fun to go to a live show. I have so many people that come to my shows, they go, I've never seen a stand-up show before. I said, Really? They're like, no, never seen stand-up live. I go, well, isn't it great? And they go, yeah, it was great. Like, I can't believe that they didn't think to, they watch it on Netflix and stuff. But there's so much content. People always say to me, yeah, I saw your Netflix special. It was great. I loved it. It was so funny. I watched it over and over. I'm like, okay, I've never had a Netflix special. (laughs) I've had an HBO special, but that's how little people can even track what is going on. And so people are getting content fatigue and screen fatigue. and I think that's why they, they, they do, again, that's why... Live entertainment is doing better. Every- and, I, and, and I think also a lot of stand-up, uh, and I don't want to be judgmental on anything, but a lot of times people just go up there and do their act. They tell jokes. And I think the audience senses when something's an act as opposed to a unique experience the comedian is giving the audience. And I think you do that extremely well. I remember the last time you were on the podcast, you mentioned you had gone to clown school and I wonder if that is related yeah I think so I think it's a lot a lot of it is very improvisational I try and go up and start by talking to the audience and picking people out because then from the get-go got something I was talking to people I went into the audience in Rahway New Jersey and the mayor was there so I was like Mr. Mayor how are you you know and I'm welcome to the show and all this stuff and then I licked his hand and I was like, I just licked a mayor. How many of you have ever seen someone lick a mayor? I'm a mayor licker. He tastes like good infrastructure and a driven campaign agenda, you know? And that was just so funny to just so, you know. And and you did that and what was it? they know, I lick a mayor more often than I don't lick a mayor. <laughs> I'm a mayor licker. You ready, TJ? Yeah, sure. I was I wasn't born ready, but I became ready about two or three days after my birth. <laughs> ready for what? Just this. <laughs> your whole life has been geared towards this moment on my podcast. Thank yeah, you. I'm I appreciate saying thanks to your mom. I will. 
Um, so the other day, I was just saying to you, the other day I saw you in the middle set. I think it was the third set you did on a night when you did eight sets. You tweeted later that was your your record day of most sets There's in one no day. There's no record on a weekday. Mm-hmm. And what's... Uh, I mean, I could, I, I actually could understand the impulse. But what was your impulse in doing eight? Like, what, what's the joy you feel? Well, I thought that I was going to be able to do seven. So, you know, it's a couple of things. One, I just started as I was booking sets. Uh, Kate is in uh, the south of France in Avignon, in in, in Provence. And uh, does she say it like that? So she's no, but she's starting to learn French. It's very irritating. And um, but she's sort of. Uh, you know, she's gone, so I started really setting up, you know, runs around Manhattan. And that Thursday, this, you know, September 17th, it just sort of came together. I was looking, I was like, I think I can do seven sets. And so I made it to all of them. And luckily, you know, both The Stand and Greenwich Village Comedy Club, they'll sort of hold the shows for me to get there. And those were my last two shows. But yeah, I did two sets at The Stand, one set at St. Mark's Comedy Club. I started out that show. I went up before the host so that I could huh. get moving. And then I did the comic strip live, which was a great, I almost missed the following one because it was so good. And uh, I was supposed to go up at Caroline's, but I just wasn't going to be able to make it there. But I also had a spot. I had double booked myself at um, the New York Comedy Club in East Village. And so it all just kind of worked out. I did two sets at The Stand, you know, Comic Strip Live, East Village, New York Comedy Club, um, St. Mark's Comedy Club, Greenwich Village Comedy Club, and then, um, uh, oh, and West Side Comedy Club. And then at the end of the night, um, I went upstairs at the stand and there was this party and they were doing burlesque and drag show stuff. And it was this guy's birthday. And they told me, you know, they invited anyone who wants to come in there and so I said, what's going on in there? So it's a surprise birthday party. It's all kind of beverage people, sort of all service industry people. And I said, I said, oh, they're doing, you know, drag shows. And I said, are they doing any comedy? And they said, no, no, not yet. Why? Do you want to go up? I said, well, that would be eight. And so they checked, and it turned out the birthday boy was a huge fan of mine. And so he was so excited. So what I did is I just quickly learned about him from his friends. And then went up and just riffed a set all about him, kind of making fun of him. Well, what, what were one of the things you learned? Uh, he's a huge Yankees fan, like an, a, an unhealthy level of Yankees fan. And so what did you, how did you translate that onto stage? You know, I just talked about uh, how many things he had. They said uh, he has this crazy collection of hats. And then I was joking about how he left his, he leaves his door open, I guess, all the time in his apartment. So I said that I went in there um, and that he, he also loves show tunes and he loves <laughs> Hamilton. And uh, he was a pretty eclectic, bizarre dude. Um, but there was plenty there to make fun of. So I just sort of did what I usually do, which is kind of contextualized behavior. I said that to do research, I snuck into his house or his apartment because the door was open and just kind of did that and didn't try and do any material or anything, just did that and kind of did you know a 10 minute set on that. And so that was eight. So it was an unexpected eight. I thought it was going to be seven. My previous record is five, I think. So, ha- so doing seven. This all on a weekday. And and <laughs> what did you learn from it? Did you feel exhausted at the end? Like, what's what's always so interesting? Once you pass four, you're kind of trying to remember if you've done that joke on that show. Um, but the reason I like doing seven is you can really solidify an idea 
and and make it great. So, you know, having done seven on Thursday and then I did shows Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday, I guess, was last night, right? So that I did six. So on a Thursday between this weekend of shows in Rhode Island, New Jersey, and Long Island, I did 13 shows. And so it's kind of, you know, I've some of the bits that are really we're really doing well in the beginning, those, uh, you know, they've already entered that phase of why aren't they doing as well as they did the first times that I tried them. Is that because you, you're, you're, it's harder to stay in the moment? Like, let's say they killed the set before, the day before. Or do you feel like you're almost reenacting the day before and so, that, so it doesn't have... It takes practice. Once you find something that's organically funny... Then it'll stop being funny because it takes practice to go back to making it seem organic. So you have to kind of find your way back into the timing of it and the cadence and all that kind of stuff. So I've got these two bits, a bit on pizza and a bit on the saying, fool me once, shame on you. I, I, and, they're, and they're connected. I love both of those bits. Yeah, and so, but those aren't doing as well as they did in the beginning. But then I have a bit about a Kenyan cab driver who thinks he's a comedian and us trading jokes back and forth. And that I used to close at the stand last night. I mean, that's how powerful that thing has become. So, you know, you quickly can pare down what is worth working on and what isn't. And you also have, you can more quickly go through that sort of, you know, peaks and valleys of a joke that you know is there and you'll get there. But, and, you know, the fun thing is now I'm leaving October 2nd to go with Kate. But the fun thing when she's not in town is I can do that and, I'm I'm setting up. I'm I'm excited. In November or early December. I'm just gonna do sets and just try and build an arsenal of one-liners because I've got about fifteen really solid one-liners, but I need like forty. So so because I use that with the trombone section of my stand-up, and I want to keep using the trombone, but. Uh, I need new jokes throughout I, it. I don't think I've seen you do a one-liner. Like, what's an for you? What's an example one-liner? Um, the the one that I do kind of to warm the audience up into it is like, well, do you you don't drink, do you? I do a little. So, do you drink? You ever drink Red Bull vodka? No, uh, I do because <laughs> I like to be awake when I pass out. <laughs> so that would be sort of a joke there, but like, I need ones that are more like. Um, uh, I've got one that I need to work, and I can't get it to work. It's uh, all conditioner is leave-in conditioner if you don't rinse it out. <laughs> and no one will laugh at that. So now I've tried That's to funny. make it a thing where my wife and I are going through divorce proceedings because she doesn't agree with me about that. So I'm like trying to work. There's something very funny about that to me. And, um, uh, yeah, but I need ones that are more like um, I went to an Asian massage parlor, and I got a massage, and then at the end... She gave me a handy man's phone number, and he came over and he fixed the balcony, <laughs> put up some pictures, and then he jacked me off. So I need more stuff like that that in one sentence sort of finds its way to kind of its little laugh, little laugh, and then a big full laugh. Um, so I just that that's the great thing about New York, especially because you're doing 12-minute sets. You can really take you know a set that is just one-liners, and I have enough to start them in that rhythm, and then I just got to keep trying things and work on that. Because if I can get a real big arsenal of one-liners, then I can really, um, you know, last night I, I did something that I haven't done forever, which is, I don't, a lot of people are worried about a reseeding hairline. I have a pro-seeding hairline. 
So it's kind of making its way down my forehead to connect with my eyebrows, and then it's going to maybe take over my face, Cousin It style. And I hadn't done that forever, and so I'm also trying to look back into the archive of things that I haven't put on television. But now the zeitgeist is so fractured, I have no problem doing stuff that was on my HBO special or anything because no one's seen it. No one has seen any of this stuff. And if they have, they've seen so much content since then that it's almost if they do remember it, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, that one. You well, know? also, like, take that hairline one. So you do it, do it at, uh, I guess, uh, either uh, uh, in Chicago, Laugh Factory, or just for laughs, I forget uh, where you did it. But it's all, it's, I think 80% of the joke, too, is the delivery. So if your delivery has evolved, which it always does, then I don't mind hearing. You know, with music, you, people don't yeah. mind hearing the same songs. Like, I feel with comedy, I like to see the nuances, the difference. Yeah, sometimes. Other times, you're like... I've already heard this one, but you're right. I mean, John Mulaney is an example of someone who he has certain jokes like the why buy the cow and you can get the milk for free. And I'll listen to that over and over again. And it's just so funny. So yeah, I think, but it's, I was talking about this with Dustin Chafin who runs the Greenwich Village Comedy Club and he's a really funny comic. I tour with him. And just the idea that, you know, we were in, well, he wasn't with me. I was there with CJ Sullivan and we were in Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. I go to some pretty exotic places. <laughs> and um, it was very strange because I went on the radio and then the guy who was booking me on the comedy club kept saying, and I also produce uh, this show that's going to be in Jacksonville coming up and it's Rush and, it's, and it was all bands from that era. And he said, and don't worry, they're just playing their hits. That's all. Just the hits. No new stuff. They're not going to get up there and be like, we're working on and out. It's just going to be the hits. And that was so tragically heartbreaking that this guy was like, they're just a jukebox, guys. We don't care about them as artists. You don't have to sort of, you know, pander to them wanting to actually be a band. They're just going to play their hits. But bands are like that. I don't think, I think with comedians, you want to see the person and what they're thinking about and the persona much more than the, the material. Woody Allen said that, right? That he said... I began to realize that the writing doesn't do anything if you don't have a persona. It was so much more about the delivery and the persona. Well, if you think about it, everybody has the choice they can watch funny cat videos at home on YouTube. So, but instead they're going out to see you, who they could also watch on YouTube or HBO or whatever. So it's sort of like, correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, sort of like your job is a little bit to create an experience, not just be funny, but create a a an, almost an absurd experience for them. That's why they're out of their house to a comedy club to see yeah, you. Yeah, and I talk about that a lot on stage, just how much I appreciate people getting out from behind these screens and how unhealthy social media is. It's so unhealthy that I think in a couple of years we're going to look back at it like it's cigarettes. We're going to see somebody on social media indoors. We're going to be like, take that shit outside. Keep it 15 feet away from the entrance. There are babies around. Secondhand Snapchatting kills. And But I really do think that it's, so I thank the audience. I say, please, you know, know that I appreciate that you guys are not sitting in front of a screen. And people really respond to that, you know. But yeah, it is an experience. And it's also just like so much more fun to go to a live show. I have so many people that come to my shows that go, I've never seen a stand-up show before. And I said, really? You've never seen me before? They're like, no, never seen stand-up live. And I go, well, isn't it great? And they go, Yeah. It was great. Like, I can't believe that they didn't think to, they watch it on Netflix and stuff. But people are so, there's so much content. People always say to me, I saw your Netflix special. 
was great. I loved it. It was so funny. I've watched it over and over. I'm like, okay, I've never had a Netflix special. <laughs> I've had an HBO special, but that's how little people can even track what right. is going on or where what they're watching is for this or that. And so people are getting content fatigue and screen fatigue. And I think that's, that's why they, they, they do, again, that's why... Live entertainment is doing better every... And, and, and I think also a lot of stand-up uh, and and I'm not I don't want to be judgmental on anything, but a lot of times people just go up there and do their act. They tell jokes, and I think the audience senses when something's an act as opposed to a unique experience the comedian is giving the audience. And I think you do that extremely well. Like, and uh, I remember the last time you were on the podcast, you mentioned you had gone to clown school or you studied a little bit. Yeah. I wonder if that is related. I think so. It's also, I was an improviser by trade, so that's what I started in, and sketch comedian and worked with Second City, and I also, for some reason, have acted in quite a few, a few films. So it's not, you know, stand-up is not the only thing that I've done. I've done, and so I try and bring all of that stuff to the stand-up. So if you actually see my show, there's juggling, and there's, you know, an audience member plays the trombone, and I have a ventriloquist dummy that has a smaller ventriloquist dummy, and... So it's just a very dynamic show, and people kind of respond to that for sure, yeah. And, you know, I've noticed with your sets when I've, when I've seen you live that you make the room itself a prop of the set. So you'll go into a room, uh, you'll say, oh, we have a disco ball here, and then you'll make a bunch of jokes that. Or the other night at the Art House Hotel, you noticed all the way in the back a printer, and you did a whole bunch of jokes like, about how you were going to be late for a plane. Pass, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so thank God there's a printer <laughs> in the room. Yeah. And so you do, I noticed with each set, you do, the first thing you do is you look around the room to see what you could pull from. But that's, an, that's the improviser. It's, you know, if you're used to riffing and making things funny off the top of your head, then it doesn't even have to be completely invented. You already have this kind of, you know, you look around and you're just like, wow, you got really fleeced by some graffiti artist that came in here and fucking was like, it's going to be fluorescent, but it's New York, but it's also really shittily done. You know, it's, it, you know, so you kind of, you have so much to be able to work with. And uh, yeah, the guy's like, and then I'll do a lot of like, ha ha ha. It's like all different types of ha's because it's a comedy club. It's like a comedy podcast venue. So, you know, what you're looking for is people to be like, ha 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 ha. So I'll represent that in fluorescent on the wall. What do you think? It's 10 grand. You know, you could pay me in Bitcoin. You know, it's, it's just <laughs> Probably like- we did pay for it. I know, but it's- Before my time. It was before your time. But um, no, I mean, I you know, I think you, I want to, I also want to acknowledge that we're all in this place. And I always say, you know, I'll never perform for this exact audience again, and no audience will ever see this exact show again. And I want to make it clear that that's true. That's not just lip service. Well, like uh, another thing I saw you do the other day is you did a high five with the woman sitting in the front, but only the fingertips mm -hmm. and then only like one finger. So again, it was like you set up this game that you were able to go back to over and over again throughout the set. And she clearly didn't want to, but part of the humor was the tension and that could only happen in a live experience. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually more clown. Anything where you're interacting with the audience and they kind of don't know what to do or maybe don't want to be a part of it. That's a big clown thing. You know, clowns always come over and, you know, if somebody's bald, they'll shine their head with a, they'll spit shine the head and, and they, you know, they just do all that kind of stuff. They'll pick somebody up and 
they'll put on a wig and they'll kind of tell them stop being coy, but then they'll go in to kiss them and then slap them. And, you know, it's just all this stuff where the audience doesn't have any choice in being part of the show. Um, but I did this thing last night. I brought my Polaroid. I have, in my rider, I have a Polaroid camera that I bring in. I need film. And often I have leftover film. So I had like 100 Polaroid pictures, just a lot of film. So I took the camera and I was just going to take pictures as I went around to different shows, just almost kind of a scrapbook of that night. And what I ended up doing was, I just thought this was funny because the Polaroid has this really big flash. And so I, I think in the first set, just as a joke, I kind of said, you know, a lot of comedians don't want you to take flash photography because it's distracting. It, you know, it kind of throws them off. But I actually found that I do better with flash photography. So I give someone in the audience in the front row the camera and I tell them to take flash photographs of me throughout the show. And that was a great running gag because if they stopped doing it, I would be like, what are you doing? And uh, each time they took a picture and the flash goes off, I would sort of, I'm in the middle of a bit and I'd be like, thank you. And then I keep going. <laughs> and people really got behind that. And then I was bombing at the West Side Comedy Club because I went up after John Fish and they had gotten into his kind of style. And I was just doing stuff and it wasn't working. And then I realized I'd forgotten the camera. I go, oh, I know what's wrong. And so I go and get the camera and I come back up and I do that. And then everybody got behind it. So that's kind of a fun bit that just arose out of the blue, but is a running gag that I can return to. And I think I'll do that at least at one show a weekend from here on out. Right, so it's expensive. It's a dollar a picture, so it costs about. So, so, so it's interesting it's about though. Fifty bucks a night for that bit. Like some things are bits that you write out or think out or or figure out on stage. Others are like again these games you set up with the audience, like the high fiving the woman or the giving someone in the audience the, the camera. Again, like this clown like stuff. What's the difference between a, a clown and let's say traditional stand up comedy? For you, I, maybe there's no difference. Well, at the end of my set, I say, you know, I'm a stand-up, I'm all kinds of comedian. I'm a stand-up comedian, I'm an improvisational comedian, I'm a sketch comedian, I do film comedy, I do television comedy, I even do children's animation. Although I don't believe that children deserve to laugh as much as adults because they're not yet aware of their own mortality. And then I say, but if you strip it all down, I am a clown. And I think, you know, having props, interacting with the audience, being, you know, a, a very physical comedian... All those are elements of clown, and I think a purist stand-up would just say it's just a guy, a microphone, and kind of jokes and thoughts and observations and that kind of stuff. But I had this agent at CAA who he was, he was supposed to be my East Coast stand-up agent, and he came and saw my show at the comic strip where I headlined, and afterwards he was like, I have all these notes for you. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll listen. And he was like, yeah, lots of people... I call them RAs, real assholes. They don't want to hear any of the notes. And I was like, well, no, I'm happy to, I think criticism always great. And then he proceeded to be like, so in your hour, you're not going to do like the juggling or the ventriloquist dummy or the trombone or anything, right? And I was like, what? And I thought he was joking. So I was like, oh yeah, no, that's the only thing that separates me from all the other white guys doing comedy. So why would I do that? And he was like, good, good, yeah. Because, you know, everybody's seen juggling and everybody's seen ventriloquism. And I was like, no one has ever done that bit with ventriloquism. I'm not. I'm not a ventriloquist. I'm not doing. And I was like, and what? Name one other comedian that juggles. One. And he goes, oh, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> um, and I was like, see. And he goes, no, no, no. Uh, Chris Bliss. Chris Bliss. And I was like, 
who is Chris Bliss? And this the agent juggler. goes, no, 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 here, don't always step on the punchlines. <laughs> um, I go, who's Chris Bliss? And the guy goes, exactly. And I went, with all due respect, not to be strange, but Chris Bliss has not been in like 20 studio films and he's not, I mean, people don't know who he is because I guess he was a juggling comedian because I remember him. And the guy goes, yeah, but I'm a real purist. You know, I like Dave Attell. And I, I said, so then you must like um, John Mulaney. He's like, no, 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 I don't like him. But and it was just this whole weird thing. And I said, you know who did juggle for a while was Steve Martin. And that worked out pretty well for him. And he doesn't even juggle as well as I do. And um, and this guy just didn't get it. And so I haven't talked to him since. I just, you know, he actually didn't understand that I'm doing something different from everybody else, and he wanted me to stop doing that because he thought I was a good stand-up without that stuff. Well, it's interesting. Like, you referred to the word arsenal when you were describing your one-liners. Like, all of these things, like kind of the the crowd work, the the making the room a prop, the the games you set up with the audience, plus your your written material. Um, now the one-liners. I, I think a lot of your stuff that I've seen has been kind of making stories, even stories that happened to you that day, like really funny. I'm curious, the one-liners is almost the other direction. Are you doing that as a challenge for yourself or what's, what's the difficulty? It's challenging, but I also I have a section of my show where I give a trombone to some of the audience and they become the rim shot. So instead of putting a bump, it's them playing the trombone. And so that's always funny and it's always different because the person who plays the trombone is always different. And... um the punchline to the bit is always the same um, to the overall bit, but each joke before the rim shot is a one-liner. And so I just need more of those so that when I tr come back to a market a second time, they're excited about the trombone, but it's different one-liners. But your one-liners, like for instance, the ones that you were just saying, those are not the kind of rim shot style one-liners, right? I usually think of like when they do the boom boom. It's a bad one-liner. Those were good one-liners you were doing. It's like Henny Youngman, yeah. Um, right, yeah. He would do like a, uh, you know, I like your early Native American features. You look like a buffalo. Boom boom. <laughs> so those things didn't quite make sense, really. But they were still like, oh yeah, I left because of the rim shot. But yeah, I want things that are that would be funny, sort of stand alone, and that's why it's good to do them in New York because I don't have the trombone rim shot so they actually need to work but and know, what's the challenge strange. in writing those i mean that it's not my forte so it just takes a little bit more time but i get you know we we get there some of them i'll do and i don't think that they're that funny like i riff this one where i say whenever i meet twins i always say can i ask you a question and invariably one of them says oh what if you pinch me does he feel it and i turn to the other and i go no but when he says something stupid do you regret it <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, like, oh my God, that's great. that worked okay, and then now it just kills. So it's also just like doing them over and over and trying to get them exactly perfect. But they're pretty fun. I had a conversation with Anthony Jesselnik, and he was like, you know, you can write a new hour in like a couple months, but it takes me months to get five minutes of new material because all of his stuff is one-liners for the most part. Even though I've seen him riff and just tell stories, and he's so good, but... That's what he wants. He wants to be a sort of a craftsman of these sort of very succinct short jokes. Yeah, and it seems like with him, it's it's he always sets himself up as kind of the hero in the first half of the joke and then just 
crushes down like he's the worst person possible in the last half of the joke, but he's very likable the way he expresses it. Because like you can kind of tell that he's not that. And yeah. he is a really nice guy. But sometimes, like, he and I aren't really friends anymore because sometimes he'll, he wants to be that thing so badly that he'll kind of step on any relationship or friendship huh. that he has. And for that reason, I think he's going to be very lonely and die alone. <laughs> I don't ever see him finding unconditional love in a partner that he feels respect for. <laughs> um, so, with your one-liners, like, oh, and I have a joke about him. Okay, I wanted to do this, but I haven't really done it. But it's like, uh, you know, everybody uh, loves uh, Anthony Jessel. Like, they think he's so funny, he's so good at what he does. Um, but anybody can do it. Watch, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do it right now. Um, how many of you know who Anthony Jeselnik is? Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, that that's a funny joke if you know him, but nobody knows him. So like, the joke's too true to the audiences that I play, and they're like, yeah, what is he talking about? Like, they've heard, some people have heard of him, but nobody's like, you have to be a comedy person to really be into stuff or a certain demographic because people come to my shows and they go, we love you in Deadpool, I love Silicon Valley, and our kid loves the Emoji movie. So I have this really strange, broad swath, they call it, a swath of, um, you know, fans, sort of my demographics are really, really, you know, wide range on the spectrum. And some of my uh, fans are on the spectrum. <laughs> I'm talking to one right now across from me. <laughs> it's probably true. Uh, so again, with the storytelling, I've seen you go up and say, like, I remember one time, it's like maybe a year ago, you you had a a cast on your arm. I don't know if you had a broken arm or what, but yeah, you went up on stage. Like, I think you were in the hospital an day elbow or the infection. <laughs> get on your phones and text about it. <laughs> so you get up on stage and you tell this hilarious story that must have happened just that day or the day before where you were in the hospital. And it seems like, again, where we're, we're, you're, I don't want to say your forte, but like I've seen you do lots of great stories on stage and it works, it works really well. Like, and I think it's a hard thing to turn a real story into something funny because you're seeing the reality of that story in a different way than everyone else in the audience. And so, and on top of it, you have to throw in kind of the, the funny in between. It's a, yeah, it's just, I mean, if you do as much comedy as I've done, you start to see the world. My insignia is a jester's eye. It's like a, an eye with a jester's hat on it. And that's sort of to signify that you can see everything through comedy but not just comedy, like a jester's version. So that's sort of witty and incisive and sometimes cutting, but still with a smile or a grin or a laugh, you know? And, and I mean, you can look at, uh, again, like the, the clown, part of that is being authentic on stage in that moment as opposed to just repeating an act. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a lot, a lot of it is very improvisational. I try and go up and start by talking to the audience and picking people out because then from the get-go... And you've got something. But I did a show at the Paramount in Huntington, Long Island. And I had a wireless microphone. It was a theater. So I just went into the audience. And I was talking to people. And I went into the audience in Rahway, New Jersey. And the mayor was there. So I was like, Mr. Mayor, how are you? You know, And I'm welcome to the show and all this stuff. And then I licked his hand. And I was like, I just licked a mayor. How many of you have ever seen someone lick a mayor? I'm a mayor licker. He tastes like good infrastructure and a driven campaign agenda, you know? And that was just so funny to just so you know that stuff they know it's like he did not lick a mayor in the last show, 
And and you did that. And what well, was they it? know I lick a mayor more often than I don't lick a mayor. <laughs> I'm a mayor licker. <laughs> Wait, you you also I'm a major got, mayor licker. You also ran into the audience. What was the award show? You ran into the audience and just started talking to random critics. Choice awards because we needed to vamp. We needed to. We needed more time. I had to go on for more time, and so I said, "Fuck it, I'll just go into the audience." But that was so strange because Ryan Gosling clearly was like, I don't want to talk to you. And uh, I forget the people I talked to, but it was just really, really crazy. Tom Ford, I think I made a joke too, and somebody else. And then Rami Malek was cool. He's a good dude. Um, but yeah, you know, you want to, the more you improvise, the more special the audience feels. Yeah. And then it's like Bitcoin, <laughs> it's probably true. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference. Pursue your dreams of business ownership 
and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. And then on the other side of the spectrum from the clown, you have a guy like Jon Stewart, who you, you can imagine looks at the news through eyes of comedy, you know, or John Oliver or... or to know. be sure, and I think John Stewart's really good at just whatever happened yesterday, he can make it funny today, you yeah. know, or even what happened today. I saw him and Chappelle at Red Rocks in Colorado, huh. and uh, that was amazing. It was really interesting to see two very complimentary comedians who are so absolutely different, but they both were kind of talking about what's going on right now and it's just, it's kind of a bad time for comedy. I didn't really think that I would ever see in my lifetime it get this bad. But I wasn't a comedian when that 90s PC swing happened. So when suddenly people were demanding, like, you call them African-Americans, not black people, that's gone out the window. You know what I mean? Now, I don't think there's a black person that I know who would be like, um, it's African-American. And so... You know, that's so maybe comedy was tough then as well, but right now it's just such a disaster that people can get fired for things they said on podcasts years ago. And it's the media's fault. This sort of internet mob mentality is really, really unhealthy. You know, yeah, it's like, like look, Bitcoin. <laughs> I know you keep bringing up Bitcoin. No comment on, on Bitcoin. 
But Dave Chappelle, uh, with his recent special, you're right. Like he he even says in the beginning, I'm gonna get torn apart for this special. He makes fun of the audience because they're the ones who are gonna do it. And then they proceed to do it. Not that specific audience, but the wider TV well, audience. Well, no, I mean, not even that. It's just all the Vanity Fair and all these writers were like, isn't it getting old talking about how terrible this, it's like, no, that's the job of the comedian. And that that special is so funny. And all of his trans stuff is so yeah. funny. And when I travel, what I've begun to realize, and I'm so lucky I'm a stand-up and not just an actor in Hollywood. As I travel, I begin to realize that everywhere I went, people, you know, they're talking about trans rights and pro the right pronouns and all that stuff. And it doesn't apply. Most people's lives, they're like, I don't know anybody who's trans. You know, you're... You're making a huge deal out of point oh 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 one percent of the population, and everybody in America is like, I, who cares? I just want to have a little bit more money this year to go to Disneyland twice. <laughs> and so it's just nobody's got the right. All the values are totally off. It's really sad to see because I don't know that he's going to lose this time because just the liberals are still so. The left, I should say, the left is just so like caught up in these issues that don't speak to anyone. And I feel like it's almost this righteous indignation where they didn't actually listen to the special. Like almost everything they were saying was factually incorrect. The first one being, I saw one article saying he was unfunny. Well, everyone in the audience was laughing hysterically and he got a 99% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So that part's wrong. And then everybody was complaining what he said about Michael Jackson. Like he 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 said he thought uh, Michael Jackson didn't do it. But then just a few minutes later, he says he doesn't know if Michael Jackson did it or not. So people just aren't act, they're just picking out the things they want to write in. Uh, they're well, gonna get they a promotion. need something that's clickbait, yeah. And I guess to get a promotion. But it's that stuff was so funny. I mean, the idea that like they got molested by Michael Jackson, you know, and that. The rest of us who got molested just have a <laughs> awkward Thanksgivings for the rest of our life. Like they got, and that's just a really funny idea, and um, and that's all it's supposed to be. It's just supposed to be an idea. He he doesn't want kids to get molested even by Michael Jackson, but that's gone out the window. And I read an article today, which was the weirdest thing, where on page six I did they wrote up that those eight sets um because jeffrey gurian sort of was trying to get that in there that guy's a lunatic i love him um <laughs> and uh and then somebody on some stupid site that nobody reads was like you know tj miller is available for birthday parties and and then halfway through the article he goes you know i'm this he tried probably was just trying to do something good for this guy and 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 round off his eight sets but and then he just went, it just doesn't make any sense. And he's like, he got canceled a while ago for this, but apparently that didn't last long. And then at the end, it's like, and he was in a Sp Steven Spielberg movie, although not a very good one, but neither was the guy from, but you don't see the kid from AI running around doing birthday, I forget, doing birthday party shows. But then again, he's too busy not getting fired from Silicon Valley. It's like, none of that makes sense. Like, Okay, but how do you it. how do you like, feel? Really, none of it. Like Steven Spielberg film, no one is in his films, so that's not something that you're like, ugh. Ready Player One was a great movie; people loved it. The kid from AI isn't a stand-up, so why would he be running around <laughs> doing birthday shows? I wasn't fired from Silicon Valley. 
the the um HBO and Mike Judge and all of those people have confirmed that I was not, that I wanted to not be on it and I left. And so just all of that is fake. It was like I did it set at the comic strip and this young girl, and I felt kind of bad for her. She just doesn't know what she's doing. She's going to Hunter College and she's 20 nothing and, you know, she's moved here from Austin and she she came in the second night that I was there and she goes, you know, um, I just wanted to tell you that uh, I told my boyfriend that I had met you and he was like, I heard he's a real asshole. And I was like, no, no, he's really, really nice. And my friend Dustin made the joke. He's like, why would she say, why do you want to know that? Would you, why would she tell you that before you go on stage? Like, what is the use of that information? But my joke was, uh, you heard I was an asshole from who? One of your friends? Who's your friend? The internet? Like, how did he hear that I was like, what does that even mean? And I love that she's like, but I defended you. And I'm like, I don't care. So I kind of had to say to her like, yeah, when you're, you're going to hear that a lot. When you're famous, that's something that, and I'll never forget that I was with my then agent uh, and Aziz Ansari was playing the Vic Theater in Chicago and he did all these press things and then the Chicago Reader, which is the city paper, wanted to do an interview with him and he said, I just can't do any more interviews. So this writer proceeded to write the 10 reasons that he thought Aziz Ansari wasn't funny. And I was like, that's pretty funny because I'm not, Aziz and I haven't had the best interactions in person. I was like, that's pretty funny. And the the um, the agent goes, yeah, I mean, once you get big enough, they just, that stuff happens. That's Everybody's trying to like take you down. I was like, I don't know if that's true. And it is true. It's well, really, really true that people just can't handle the idea that you would be important enough to not care about them. It's just, that's the worst. And especially journalists and these writers, because none of these writers really make a living writing for, I'm not even sure you can make a living writing for vulture.com if you're not one of the main writers. So some of these big sites, I think these people still are doing web design or something yeah, there's, else. Yeah, there's no, I think maybe 20 years ago you can make a living on the internet writing, but now... It's it's zero because there's 20 people behind you willing to write for free. And so, so many of those people are so bitter and they'll try and say anything to just get clickbait, to get the clicks, to ideally have the site go, yeah, we'd like you to keep writing from us. But what are they getting paid? They can't be getting paid more than a couple hundred dollars for an article. So, so can't so, live off that. I mean, I, I went through something not similar in, to what you're describing, but similar in a different area, now Bitcoin. Uh, there was like a whole bunch of articles. Now on to Bitcoin. <laughs> there was a whole bunch Which of I've articles. I've been wanting to talk to you about because I'm friends with the Winklevoss twins. Continue. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I, I, there was all these articles written about me and Bitcoin, and I would have the reporter read back what I just said just to confirm that she heard me or he heard me, and then they would always misquote me in the article and lie. And it actually... You know, I had been written about before and and I had had the Twitter mob before, but this particular time really bothered me because it was both a bunch of reporters and articles and actually people I knew and the Twitter mob. And I really hated it. It really bothered me. Well, it's frustrating. You have to sort of shake your head and kind of tune out the noise. Kate gets really mad at me if I read Google alerts for myself or anything. She just is like, what is that going to do? It doesn't... You know, she's always saying, you know, you sell out everywhere. These people, everybody wants to do the VIP meet and greet. She's like, why do you care what these like bitter 
internet people say, and I've, it, I, I did it a little bit to desensitize myself because now I read it, I'm like, oh, give me a break. But what's really sad, I think, not as much the affront to truth that they're kind of misquoting you and lying and doing just saying whatever they want to say. The real thing that I think is so tragic is that, you know, Donald, this happened with Hitler. Speaking of Jews, this <laughs> happened when Hitler took over, as he said, you know, the Jewish media, the Jewish press is, you know, lying and they're taking, and there was enough there for the public to be like, yeah, the press does lie. And you can't just say that if people aren't being irresponsible with their journalism and their writing. They have to be at least a little bit irresponsible. And now with the internet, they are just full-blown, completely irresponsible. So everyone in America is like, yeah, CNN is just trying to get ratings as much as Fox. And so the free press has really collapsed upon itself. And that's what's really sad is that, and people don't see it. There's just so much anger or whatever, but they don't get that if they don't clarify and say, well, actually people thought that TJ might've been fired from Silicon Valley, but he wasn't, he left of his own accord. If they never say that, if they just say the thing that's mean or what, then they fatigue the reader to the point where they're like, I don't even want to read this thing anymore. But, but I, and think then there's less clicks, less advertising. So they get even meaner and more outrageous. And it's just this vicious cycle. And I don't know where it's headed. Nowhere good. I, I, don't think it's heading anywhere good either. Like, I was. Once, what did they misquote you on? With not to get into the particulars. Okay, but I'll, they, I'll, I'll tell you. So they said, and or what's one example? What's well, one example? They said they asked me, "Were you manipulating Amazon stock by claiming Amazon will one day accept Bitcoin?" And I said, first off, how can I, a single person, manipulate a stock that's traded tens of billions of dollars worth yeah. a day? Like, how could I possibly? do that. And I said, do you agree that that's impossible? And she didn't say anything. And I said, do you agree that that's impossible? And she said, yes, that's impossible. And then she said, uh, in the article, James is manipulating Amazon's stock. And, and so then, then it goes on Twitter, James is pumping and dumping stocks. It's Amazon. It, tra it, it trades a hundred billion dollars worth a day. Like what, who do people think I am? And, but then like literally people would unfriend me and all this stuff. So finally, at three in the morning one night, I wrote on Twitter, if anyone has a problem with me, call me. And I put my phone number and I was talking for like the next 24 hours on the phone, which is the stupidest thing, stupidest waste of a day. I was going to say, <laughs> I cannot do that. Even though my no, one of my phone numbers has been published, it's like, yeah, I could not. And it is a waste of your time. I mean, why, why do you engage with those people who quote unquote have a problem with you? And that is insane that she would say that. And of course she wants to do that. And Bitcoin is also in this space where people still don't quite understand or know about it. But if I would say, you know, we had dinner with um, Tyler and Cameron and the Winklevice speculated that Bitcoin would either spike to 10, 20 after the crash and then come down to 15, or they said, or it just is gonna go and hover at 10. Well, that's what it's doing, but they didn't know that. And even if they had said, that's what we think is going to happen, they can't control the market by what they say, even if they do own 1% of all Bitcoin. And I don't know how much Bitcoin you own, but it's like, they have a lot of fucking Bitcoin and they're not manipulating the market with what they say or not. And they also are, you know, they built Gemini because they understand that we're still very far away from mass adoption. Right. Like but K and I, I mean, I made... 
I tried. Their exchange was too hard to get into, but it's probably one of the safest. But I, I tried to get in when they crashed and was at 5,500, and I just could not get in until it was at eight. But now it feels like it's creeping its way down. But I think, you know, the idea be, behind hodling is that this is a thing that even if it's just store value, which it won't be, um, uh, you know, we're waiting for something to happen that just isn't going to happen next year, you know? Right, look, the internet, when was the first time you put your credit card into an e-commerce website? Probably, probably A, a full 30 years after the internet was developed and yeah. 10 or 11 years after the web was developed. Like, things just and even then, take time. Even then, for a long time, people were going... Hey, look, you know, um, uh, are you really, can you trust that site to put your credit card in? There is also that growth period, you know? Right. But I, I, you know, I, cause I got crazy about blockchain after meeting them and did that thing where you just go into a blockchain hole and you just, for <laughs> weeks, you're just learning about it and watching videos and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I basically only got interested in Ethereum and Bitcoin, but it, it is this thing of sort of, you know, once you've learned enough about it, you do realize that this is not the end of it. It's not $10,000 for each coin is not where this is going to remain. It's like, because it, there's a limited amount of it, when people say it's going to be $100,000 a coin or a million dollars a coin, there's no way to say that that's not true. You right, know? and also it's one of these things where it can't stay at 10,000. It's either going to zero because people move on and it, 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 the value wasn't there, or it's going to be some huge number because, okay, currency needs to evolve. 2008, 2009 crisis showed us that we, we don't really have a proper understanding of paper money. And so that's when Bitcoin was developed to solve some of the problems of paper or what's called fiat, fiat money. Yeah. And it works. Like the problems were solved by this theoretical, originally theoretical thing, Bitcoin. Now we see, we wait and see as it gets adopted, but it's been around 10 years. It's, it is used for transactions. Every time that some country has political troubles, there's a flight to safety into Bitcoin, Bitcoin spikes up. So some billionaires are using it. So, and, and I think too, uh, yeah, it is that sort of thing that you're saying, which is it just takes a long time for something to become adopted in a mass way. But my friend who works for The Daily Show, who does not like it, uh, <laughs> he just thinks it's a leftist propaganda machine. Um, but he he very shrewdly said, and I, I've had conversations with the Winklevi about this, that you know we were talking about, we were like, okay, it was the housing crisis. Before that, it was the dot-com sort of bubble that exploded. And like, what is the next thing? It's got to be something that people aren't really looking at or can't believe that it would happen, just like the housing collapse. And he thinks, and I sort of agree that it's the dollar, you know, that there's going to be some moment coming up where the dollar just becomes devalued. It's happened to every other country for the most part. And we just can't stay that. And this president is waiting dangerously close to that typhoon that comes if you uh piss off one of our major like china or something like that that if that becomes a huge problem um and there is some genuine real long-lasting conflict that's when the dollar just collapses you know yeah because if, if you think of the two things you named were the the housing crisis which actually it wasn't a housing crisis it was the derivatives around housing so housing prices peaked 
in 2006. They were already starting to come back in 2008, but then all of the options upon options upon options on housing, those collapsed, and then that wiped all the banks out. So it's this weird financial kind of complicated innovation that caused everything to collapse. With the internet, it wasn't like so much that internet companies were a fad, but there was every banker was taking every dot-com public. So there was this boom of IPOs, of, of kind of uh, stock that was worthless that people were buying, and then that collapsed. So now your point here is, is that the dollar itself is a fiction just like that, that those internet stocks. Just like stocks. the value of the stocks, just like the... Every financial the innovation, the value junk bonds the, in the 80s. The money that you've lended. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, that'll be interesting to see if that's exactly what happens. But we can't, you know, we can't just assume that the dollar is bulletproof just because it's had that record. I mean, you know, people were getting bigger houses than they wanted to have. and But Kate gets very frustrated because she, she likes to stockpile cash. So we have a lot of, like, cash. But I, we've taken a pretty strong position in Bitcoin just because I think, you know, between you and the Winklevi, the people that are, and, you know, some other people that I know, you know, smart people are kind of seeing the potentiality of this long, long term because you're never going to make any real money day trading. That's a, Right now, Bitcoin is a lot like penny stocks for a lot of people. And if they can't afford much Bitcoin, then they go into Ripple and all these other altcoins. But that's not really Bitcoin is gold, you know, and we hope that Ethereum is silver or whatever else yeah. you, know, you diversify with. And um, so that's kind of where we are. And I bought, you know, I bought some Ripple and things like that. But the Bitcoin is the thing that is, that's blockchain currency. Right. And that's the one that's been around the longest. It's the most thought, amount of thought has been put into and it. it. It's, it's the only thing that's really accepted right now. Yeah. You can't really pay a bunch of places to... But yeah, you can pay at Barnes and Noble and and you know and these other places that are rushing the Facebook coin, which is essentially a slightly decentralized coin, but it still is as a central almost banking system type of thing. This Walmart coin that's coming out, they'll all have coins, but Bitcoin will suddenly be this thing that you can use at all those places because they're not going to say no to value they're not going to say we don't accept bitcoin they could say you'll have to turn your bitcoin into amazon you know coins yeah. but you still you know you're still able to move freely with bitcoin i mean people don't realize how close i mean maybe people do realize but in 2008 2009 the dollars in your pocket were almost worthless like and and then you know this centralized bank started pumping so much dollars into the economy nobody really it was a guess nobody really knew what would happen to the dollar and to your point about trump and these tariff wars who knows when there's a tipping point where we can go too far it's always some some financial innovation or some financial danger that we've never hit before that kind of throws everything upside down so like when you ask what's next it's it's got to be something from the financial world, we're, we're, we're in an area where people don't understand. Exactly. I and mean, it's got to be something that no one can predict. That's what the big short was about, that yeah. only a couple people were like, hey, wait a second. The housing market, we need to show it's, it's It's become overvalued, like these stocks that for the tech companies that went public. I mean, WeWork is dealing that, with that right now. That yeah. is the latest thing where it's like, 
this might be a lose this might be a company that's going to lose money and has lost money and not is not going to turn a profit so that whole model is really really strange to me but i think you know the thing that nobody's really talking about is that china doesn't care about its people and america for the most part the president doesn't care about the american people but america does care about every person and in China, so if you go to war with China for a tariff war or something, they're going to win because they're willing to have their people starve or their lives go south. And Americans aren't, they're not used to that. They're not, you know, I'll do anything for the country. I'm a slave to the country. So I think the other thing is people aren't really understanding how different these other countries are that he's fooling around with, you know? It's just very strange. And North Korea, that guy's crazy. Like, what's to say he doesn't just decide, like, let's launch a you know missile just to scare the United States and I'll go in a bunker and if a bunch of the people in my country die, well, that's just what happens. It's just a very, it's a very strange time right now. But I do love, I mean, I always talk about this with Cash Levy. I have a podcast, Cashing In with TJ Miller. Check it out. It's on Himalaya, which is an app that nobody uses. It's also on iTunes and Stitcher and gregspods.org, which is a made-up site. And um, but you know, you you kind of you're. I like that as a .org. I know it's a .org. It has <laughs> it's, to be. It's a charitable. I can't say podcast, .gov. Right? They'll get upset with me. <laughs> um, you know, Cash Levy and I are always talking about how we're just so lucky that the founding fathers of this country were such geniuses that they set up a system that we complain about when nothing gets done, but when what has happened has happened, he kind of can't tear the whole thing down. There's just too many checks and balances and too much red tape, you know? And once we kind of got Congress, then it was like everybody could sigh a little bit of, you know, a little bit of relief because, you know, once one, if it's a completely Republican held government, then some damage can be done. But if you have just one of the checks and balances be, you know, at least somewhat sane. But it's it's crazy that Republicans kind of fell in line with him. I just never thought that would happen. You just didn't think that they could stoop that low. And then they did because they just all are so afraid of who, losing. Who do you want for 2020? I still would like somebody to emerge as a real i think everybody's going to vote for who they think can beat him i mean that's kind of what this has become which is dangerous guessing what the rest of the country who they're going to vote for i mean i think yang is really interesting and would be a really great i've started we started giving a little bit of money to him um but i think yang would be interesting for a lot of reasons and I just don't think, I think Elizabeth Warren looks too much like Hillary Clinton. That's how superficial this country can be. And I think that Bernie kind of doesn't have the momentum that he had when he first ran. And that, you know, if you see that documentary Michael Moore did, he really got robbed of that, that nomination. But so I don't know. So we've sort of stopped giving him money just to kind of see what he can do without our, like, you know, you just, I, I also really realized that you have to look at the bigger picture. It is a populist vote that is going to win this thing. And so, I don't know. Yang would be so cool because he's approaching it from such a different standpoint, you know? Well, I feel like Yang could sit here at the table with us and just have a conversation. Whereas if it's like other candidates, it feels like it would be more practiced or rehearsed. 
Right. Whereas exactly. Yang is, and and it's uh, got good ideas. This, people are like, How, "What is this universal basic income? Give me a break." Even Bernie's talking about it. This like, if you just tax the point oh one percent, just a little bit more, that's just billions of dollars in revenue. Also, yeah. uh, Yang billions. It's only three hundred fifty million Americans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but Yang also says if you put a ten percent sales tax on everything, normally that's considered hurtful to poorer people. But his point is, if I'm giving twelve thousand a year to people, they're still better off unless they spend hundred twenty thousand a year, which they're not going to do because they're only making twelve thousand a year. So he's 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 got the math, whereas a lot of these other candidates don't have the math for what they're saying, and it's. It's interesting down each point, like his book, the the war against uh, normal people, is is he explains each thing. It's really I good. Seen it. I, I'm gonna read that one. But yeah, it's yeah. I don't know. It's really frustrating because it's like if he had a prayer, I would just get behind him completely. But he he would have to really mobilize the younger vote, and so many people are still in Bernie's camp and. I think so many women are kind of going, they, she's got to have a pussy. The, this president's got to have a pussy. And so Elizabeth Warren, Nancy Pelosi, kind of, and I'm like, what happened to AOC? Like, it's just gotten really, really, Kamala Harris, we know her. She's brilliant, but she's sort of faded into the background. It's it's very strange. Beto O'Rourke, people liked for a second, but now he's got a security team carrying around Nerf guns and stuff. I mean, it just seems like nobody knows how to capture the American public's attention. And that's a real problem because that's all he needs is for people to be split. And I actually, Biden, I think would be a good president if only that he kind of hasn't really bought into all this stuff. He's still kind of making fun of the outrage culture. And that is, I think, what connects with Americans right now. I think Americans are waiting for somebody to go, this internet cancel culture bullshit, give me a break. Oh, I smelled somebody's hair, who cares? And he's got some, you know, he can. He's gonna get. He's gonna get good things done. He's not gonna do anything bad. But I would vote for a rock, you know, instead of this guy. I'd vote for a dog that has developmental issues. Like, you know, it's just a bad. It's a bad situation. And anybody who disagrees is like not paying attention or just is doubling down on their mistake. I mean, it was, it was sort of a mistake. I don't know that she would have been great but she would have been a lot better than the situation that we found ourselves in now yeah and um we had a guy Especially on... with climate changes like that's starting to be what people should be talking about kate and i always say if we ran for president we would just focus on two things climate change and the economy that's all anybody cares about if you really boil it down not pro-life not pro-choice not any of that stuff it's climate change and the economy why do you think not just the economy because like you said earlier People just want to know they're making a little extra money so they can go to Disneyland younger twice. Younger people don't. They're thinking about climate change. But younger people don't vote is the problem. Well, the, if you focused on climate change and you were like, I need your vote so that we can fix this thing and save the human species, by the time she and I would run, and it's never been done that you would run on the same ticket. There's never been a husband and wife that ran for president. It's always like a first lady or it would be a first yeah. husband or something. So they've never done that. And that would be a really dynamic thing because you could balance each other out. You know, one of you could be like, I think these fucking idiots are. <laughs> and the other person is like, he gets he gets excited about this stuff, but we need to find a middle road. And so that just, really was explain. that you and uh, imagining you and Kate uh, talking to the public? <laughs> yeah, or we can turn it around the other way. You know, it doesn't matter. You just have to manipulate them into voting. Just so, kidding. <laughs> 
We, you know, we had a, a, a professional campaign guy on the podcast the other day, and he was saying how uh, whoever wins Iowa, forty in all in all out of all elections, forty three percent of them, whoever wins Iowa, wins the nomination. So, and and the problem is Andrew Yang's not campaigning in Iowa. No, he is. Oh, he is. He just he just set up offices and he has two people. Or no, he full, he's got a full time staff of eight or something. He knows that that's his hail mary. If he can somehow get Iowa to get behind him as a person, um, he could do it. The problem is Iowa's exactly almost 50-50 in terms of their ideology of Des Moines, which is like super hip, young, very cool, very smart. And then all of your farmland and smaller towns that are just, it's just such a strange mix now, but much more so than four years ago. I mean, you know, I I played Des Moines just recently and it is barcade coin-op bars and mm. vegan pizza places. I mean, it is, it's becoming a place like Omaha where you're like, yeah, right, Des Moines, Iowa. And it's like, no, Des Moines, Iowa. Although their Although t-shirts say, say uh, hell yeah, Des Moines, hell yeah. Okay. So you're like, that's the edginess that you oh, can get. Although I'm not, I'm not sure. Did you just make a positive comparison to Omaha? I'm still not there on the Omaha. No, I mean, you know, when's the last time you went to Omaha? 2005 yeah so i go there every year mm -hmm. and it's just a lot cooler than you would have ever imagined and you know warren buffett has infected that city in a positive way everybody there is financially savvy everybody there it's very interesting what it's like there but they have kind of vintage t-shirt shops and impossible burger joints and you know it's just a very smart they got great music for pretty good stand-up scene so this is a different America than four years ago. So it'll be really interesting. But yeah, if Yang could get Iowa, then I think people would start. All he needs is something where people are like, wait, this guy could win. Right, because then he's going to appeal to those people who feel disenfranchised. Like, oh, I really will get that $1,000 a month. It's going to happen. Then it's game over. So that's the big challenge for that him. That would be amazing. It would just be amazing to get $1,000 a month that would change so many people's lives, yeah. so much more than any tax cuts or any kind of stuff. I mean, Trump is just, you know, we didn't benefit that much from it, but, you know, we spent so much money giving money to Hillary Clinton so that we could be taxed more. And the people that voted for him didn't understand, they just didn't get the math of it. I guess that's the whole Yang math thing. It's like, you know, they just didn't get it. Um so we're coming to the end, unfortunately. Yes. Um, but I, I want to talk about the things that you really want to talk about. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed the conversation. Because we talked about Bitcoin. I was excited about talking about Bitcoin. Uh, uh, you have a movie coming out, Underwater, January yeah, 2020. Kristen Stewart and I did a film with Vincent Cassell called Underwater, January 10th. Um, it's a thriller. It's a throwback to my Cloverfield days. I'm not going to say that the uh, my character in Underwater is related to my character in Cloverfield, but if you watch closely, you might see some sort of Easter egg comparisons that this might not be a prequel or a sequel, but sort of a parallel. Well, you go see the movie. And then... Um, um, what else you got going on? It's going to be great. And it's, you know, this is... I filmed that 10 years after I did Cloverfield. So it was really interesting to film that and you know it's it's very much like cloverfield and so you're gonna see how much i've developed as like a comedic actor in that time and i'm pretty interested and proud of that work 
Then I did a film with Drew Barrymore that's sort of a super dark film uh, called The Stand-In, where she plays two parts. She plays a disgraced movie star and her that movie star's stand-in. And the stand-in sort of starts to take over her life and try and take over her life when she becomes isolated because the media sort of has attacked her. And that's very relevant and very right now. But I think we're going to, I'm realizing we're going to have a tough time getting into festivals because A, studios don't make great films with great actors anymore. So the festivals are where Meryl Streep and Steven Soderbergh and Tahiki Wakahiki or whoever did Jojo Rabbit, those are, um, those movies are going to these festivals. So it's stiff competition. And then also it's the movie darkly makes fun of this media frenzied cancel culture you know, just people being terrible to people in Hollywood. And I don't think Hollywood is okay with making fun of that as much as we had hoped. When are you going to break the uh, eight sets in one day record? I don't know. I talked, it's possible. I didn't even really get the routing and I didn't start until 8.15. So if I can do a bringer show or two, those are start at like 5.30 or 6.30. It could be pretty easy to pass 10. So I'm going to go for 11. I think we'll be the next I haven't step. spoken to Aaron Berg about it yet, but he did like 25. He did 25, and, and he did a documentary about it. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. I told him, I was like, I'm going to beat your record. He's like, don't do it until the documentary came out because he knows that on. I can. You know what I mean? Um, but I think I would do, yeah, I'd try. I mean, I guess you try and make it to 30 or even 28. But I, I would have to, what I would do is I would rent a space and then use that full 24 hours. So I would do shows every hour, you know, starting at three or, you know, three o'clock show, four o'clock show, five o'clock show, six o'clock show. So I would just keep doing just it. Just use this space. Yeah, just come in here to the podcast studio. No, no, downstairs. Do the, the, no, 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 I would love it? that. Yeah, yeah, I would Done. love that. Just tell me the day. And I mean, we'll that would be the deal. I think that's the next year thing. The thing that I really want to do after seeing Free Solo is I want to do a thousand sets in a year. So that would be two point seven sets a day, uh-huh. and I just think that would be, that's a, that would be a Guinness Book of World Records, and I'm not sure anybody could ever beat that. I just don't know that anybody would for a year perform that much. So I was going to do that in 2020, but I think I'm going to wait and do it in 2021. Maybe 2020 here at Stand Up New York, we'll do the 27 sets in a in a day. Well, if you're willing to sort of do a show every half an hour and yeah. like shuffle through the audience. Um, and we'll fill it up. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I th- yeah, you, I think I could get up to like, yeah, you could. I mean, if you did starting at 4 a.m. Well, let's just say 24 hours, you'll do 48. No, you could do, no, you could do yeah, you, you could do like 40 sets yeah. easily. And, but, but honestly, more because, you know, in some of these clubs, it's like the stand has two rooms. And so some of these clubs, you just do a show, go upstairs and do a show, and then you have two shows done in a half an hour. Right. So when you bounce around to those, and they, you know, do Greenwich Village Comedy Club, bounce over to the Grizzly Pair. No, 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 Pair, forget downtown. We want, we want you up here. We'll, we'll work out something with Westside. We'll go back and forth there. It's like a block away. Yeah, we can definitely do that. But that just, that can only be a portion of the, you know, the right. shows. I think, I like what you're saying, which is like the late night all exists here. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, T.J. Miller, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I wish I could stay longer and talk more about things, but I have to go eat sushi at the Omakase Room with Tatsu with the producer 
of Sirius XM because strangely they paired with Pandora and they've some that and podcasts have suddenly appeared as this like everybody thought oh podcasts are for free you're never going to make money and now like it's audio happening. is really really something because people can do it while they're doing something else i think people more people are reading audiobooks now too than yeah exactly because i think you can do it while doing something else you yeah. can't watch um uh oh i had the funny peaky blinders that would have been so funny if i thought of it right away <laughs> you can't watch peaky blinders and do something else you know right. And so I think that's a big part of it. I find myself watching stuff and I'm looking things up on my phone and it's it's just gotten really bad. So Kate and I have been being good about just like shutting off for periods of time. I don't even have my phone on me. When I leave the house, I don't have well, my phone. Well, but you, you know, you gave your phone number out to the Twitter mob, so I'm glad you don't. <laughs> you have two phones in your pocket. Why do you have two phones in your pocket? Um, this is my work phone, this is my personal phone. So are you this like in actually, the CIA? I used, I used to have I used to have a, uh, a an assistant. We used to have a personal assistant and it was it was exorbitant how much money we paid them. And then I realized that if I replaced her with this, that uh, I didn't have to pay anything except for a second line. And I just, all I do is text. I advance all my own dates. I, I, I was doing the social media marketing anyway. No one can, you know. So it's just, it's, it's so much better for people to directly contact me instead of me being like, talk to my assistant, you know. And she would always fuck stuff up. It was crazy. And I always wanted her to transcribe my sets and she would never do it. None of these assistants would do it. None of them. Huh. So, they would just say no? And now they just would, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe Kate and I are too nice. Or something, but I would, I would hardline it with some of these people and they just wouldn't, they just couldn't get it together. One of our assistants kind of fell in love with Kate and that was really weird and made it weird for the whole thing. Another one just sort of lied and tried to embezzle from us. Another one was fucking a married guy in our office space when we were out of town. I'm sorry and about that. Another one was helping her fuck that married guy and making sure we were out of town. It's like we've never had a good experience with an assistant. Never. So we've had a lot of good experiences with this one. <laughs> and this assistant can show you pornography if you needed to, you know? Well, thanks so much once again. Thank you, you for having back. me. It's always wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to come back anytime. Excellent. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 